So yes, we're reading from Psalm 45, and that's on page 569 in the Church Bibles. My heart, my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and are brought to her. Sorry, brought to you. They are led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. tell the children to go to Sunday Club. Um, children, time to go to Sunday Club. Andy, thank you. Well, it is uh, lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for, for having me. Let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? Father God, we want to thank you so much for your presence by your spirit, and we long that that spirit will be at work amongst us now. Please may he take those words which he first inspired and speak them afresh to our hearts. And above all, please open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the glory of Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a wedding 
and the normal things happened. There was a procession with the father, the bride, and the bride dressed in white. And there was the exchange of vows and rings. And after the service, there was the, uh, the reception and so forth. And during the reception particularly, I was struck by what emotions occasions like a wedding creates. So I was sat on a table of people I didn't know, but there was one couple there, they'd been married 25 years, and they reflected on how the wedding service had brought back happy memories of their big day. And then somebody I did know, just halfway through the reception, said, can we have a chat? And for her, actually, the wedding day had just created deep feelings of pain, of loneliness at her own singleness, and she just wanted to tell somebody. I guess for others, events like weddings create a sense of sadness, perhaps like marriages that have gone wrong, or bereavements, or for those who are same-sex attraction, other emotions are thrown up by weddings. Love, particularly romantic love, is perhaps the strongest emotion we feel this side of a new creation. It's the theme of songs, it's the theme of TV dramas, it's the theme of films, it's the thing that makes the heart beat faster. One book of the Bible celebrates it. In Song of Songs, you hear these words, love is as strong as death. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. And given it is the thing that perhaps arouses both the greatest joys and the greatest sorrows for us, how do we deal with it? How can we think clearly about this issue of love and romance and marriage? How does that speak into issues of sexuality? I want to look with you this morning at Psalm 45. Now, this is somewhat counterintuitive as somebody who's single. Psalm 45 is my favorite psalm. And it's counterintuitive because it's a psalm all about a wedding. It's not only not a, just a wedding... It is a royal wedding. This is a wedding that involves a king. So we see in the, uh, the little introduction that is part of the text, it's a wedding song. And so we're to imagine maybe some great poet stirred by the wedding of a king writing a poem to celebrate the occasion. Verse 1, my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the, t- for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. Now, we don't actually know which king this is. Some people think it's Solomon. There are plenty of opportunities, but, but we're not entirely sure who this king is. And yet we see the king described in stunning language. In the first few verses, we get various aspects of his character. He's the most excellent of men. His lips have been anointed with grace. He speaks gentle and kind words. He's a warrior. He's a successful warrior. But the reason he goes into battle is on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. This isn't a king simply after his own prestige. No selfish ambition, but concerned about humility. He's a king who ends up being revered by people across the world, not just Israel. Verse 5, the nations fall beneath your feet. And then in verse 6 and 7, 
you get some of the most mysterious verses in the whole Old Testament. Because as this poet is describing the king, it's almost as though they excel themselves. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And it's still speaking about the king here. Seemingly regarded as divine. In fact, it gets confusing in verses 6 and 7 because you have two different characters referred to as God. You have this king who is divine, whose throne will last forever, who loves righteousness. And then, verse 7, this king is blessed and anointed by God with the oil of joy. Well, there's a mystery. What on earth is going on? And then in verse 8, you discover this is a happy king. The music of the strings makes you glad. A happy king in verse 8. And so there's a degree of mystery. Who on earth is this king? I mean, at one level, some of this speaks about Solomon because he is revered by people across the world. And yet, even for Solomon, it's pushing it a bit. And it's no surprise. That when you get to the New Testament and you get to Hebrews chapter 1 and you find the author to the Hebrews listing various Old Testament passages that speak of Jesus as divine, Psalm 45 is in the list. Verses 6 and 7 can only ultimately be speaking of Jesus. Now let me tell you about a man called Justin. Justin was a uh, traveling philosopher back in the second century. Apparently, you can make a living in the Roman Empire, but just traveling around, giving people your philosophy. And he wasn't a Christian, but he was intrigued by Christians, particularly as he saw Christians being martyred. Why is it that they're being led off to their death so willingly? And it led to this man, Justin, looking into the claims of Christianity. And actually, the thing that led him to becoming a Christian was that he was convinced that the Bible fitted together perfectly. Particularly, the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament were so clear that there must be a divine mind behind them. And actually, Psalm 45 was one of those. This psalm that seemingly speaks of this divine figure mysteriously, who's also a bridegroom. He says, gosh, centuries before, Jesus foretold so perfectly Fair enough, once Justin becomes a Christian, he writes to the Roman emperor, explaining why the emperor should stop persecuting Christians. And he explains why he's become a Christian. You know, why should he believe that somebody who ends up being crucified is the firstborn of God? Why does he believe that? Because testimonies concerning him were published before he came. The fact that Jesus is foretold so perfectly in the Old Testament is just one reason to believe that this really is God's plan and he really is the son of God. Now, Justin wasn't conspicuously successful in trying to persuade the Roman emperor not to persecute Christians. It, indeed, he's passed into church history known as Justin Martyr because he ended up following those he first admired. But for our purposes in Psalm 45, what I want us to notice is just the clarity with which he saw and we can see Jesus in this psalm centuries before he walked on the earth because Jesus really is the most excellent of men the one whose lips are anointed with grace if you think as you look through the gospels how Jesus just speaks words so graciously so generously 
to the one broken by sexual sin, your sins are forgiven. To the bleeding woman covered in shame for so many years, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. As you look through the Gospels, there isn't a moment, is there, when you can think, yeah, Jesus should have put that slightly differently. He's the one whose lips are anointed with grace. He's the warrior who goes into battle against Satan, against sin, and against death, triumphant out the other side for truth and humility and righteousness. He's the one who ends up being revered through all nations. And if you want evidence of that, well, we are, aren't we? Miles away from where Jesus lived, and yet today, worshipping and praising the Lord Jesus. The one who is divine and simultaneously anointed and blessed by God. The one who will say, before Abraham was, I am, I am the divine one. Blessed by his father. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The one who is full of joy. The one anointed with joy, verse 7. The one who's glad, verse 8. You do realize Jesus was a happy king. You know, shortly before he leaves the earth, he says to his disciples, my joy I leave with you. And the disciples don't say, your joy, Jesus, we've never seen that. No, known as somebody full of joy. And he is the bridegroom. You know, if this is about a royal bridegroom, then Jesus fulfills that perfectly. Three times in the Gospels, Jesus uses bridegroom language to describe himself. In Psalm 45, we see the most excellent of men. The royal bridegroom. The glorious King Jesus. The one whose lips speak grace. The one who triumphs in battle. The one revered in all nations. The one who is divine and blessed by God the one full of joy. Jesus foretold so perfectly the climax of history, the most excellent of men. Now, if you're going to have a wedding, you need more than a bridegroom. You need a bride. And what we get in Psalm 45 is an introduction to this bride. She appears there in verse 9. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir, this beautiful bride. And what you get in verses 10 and 11, it seems to me, is the proposal. Now, in those days, kings didn't get down on bended knee. Rather, it's done through an intermediary. And so you get the invitation to this, this woman to become the queen, to become the royal bride. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. And so there's an invitation to her to say, you need to leave behind your old family and join a new one. A new one, part of the royal family. And the motivation to do that, verse 11, the king is enthralled by your beauty. Now, as you work your way through the Bible's story, if Jesus is this ultimate bridegroom, then who on earth is this beautiful bride? Well, according to the Bible, there's only one option for that. And if we're Christians, it's us. 
we're the bride. Jesus comes as the bridegroom, seek your bride. All those who put their trust in him are part of the church, which is his royal bride. In a sense, the invitation to become a Christian is a proposal. Forget your father's house. Join a new family. A new family where your primary allegiance is going to be to Jesus. And do you notice the basis on which the invitation king is enthralled by your beauty? Aren't those astonishing words? It's not the only time the Bible speaks in this, that language. Back in Isaiah 62, one of my favorite passages, God is speaking to his people. And you get this promise, the Lord will take delight in you. And your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoice over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. One of the privileges of being a church leader was sometimes standing about here. And over there would be a guy looking slightly nervous. The back would be a woman dressed in white. And the joy of standing here was I got to see his face as he looked down the aisle and she was walking up. And he was normally vaguely positive about what he saw. (laughs) He was kind of thrilled. Hey, she's beautiful and she's coming for me. And as a bridegroom rejoice over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. And those astonishing words... The kind of words I wouldn't dare write, actually. But they're here. The Lord Jesus really does want us as part of his bride. You know, sometimes you can feel sorry for Jesus, can't you? He wants a bride, and you know, he gets, well, us. But Psalm 45 says he's enthralled by our beauty. Indeed, he dies on the cross to make us radiant, gleaming, bright. He wants to be married to us. And it might be for some of us this morning, if actually one of the struggles we have, maybe in this whole area of romance and sexuality, is just a sense of, you know, is anybody interested in me? Am I worth anything? Or let those words thrill your heart this morning. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. He really does want us to be his bride. He really does love us. They're the most astonishing words. And so you get this invitation is received positively. She says yes. And towards the end of the psalm, you get the wedding day. Verse 14, in embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions, I don't know, imagine bridesmaids, follow her and are brought to you. They're led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. Imagine this glorious wedding day, marked by joy and gladness. What we discover in verses 16 and 17 is this is a wedding which ripples down through the centuries. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. We're talking about it today. The nations will praise you forever and ever. This is a wedding again, which is heard about throughout the world. A bridegroom, a bride. A wedding day. And what we have at the end of Psalm 45, where you have this 
have this uh, wedding marked by joy and gladness, what you have is a picture of eternity. A picture of the end of time on that great day when we're encouraged to rejoice and be glad because the wedding of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Jesus, will you take this church to be your wedded wife? I will. Church, will you take this Jesus to be your wedded husband? We will. And we will indeed live happily ever after. Christians' futures to have a leading role in the greatest royal wedding the universe has ever known. Hope you're looking forward to it. It's going to be very, very good. Beginning to see why Psalm 45 is my favorite psalm? Because it speaks of where, if we're Christians, we're heading. Now, I guess for those of us, perhaps at least half of us, the idea of being a bride for eternity feels slightly strange. But, but the point is this, the greatest emotions we feel this side of a new creation are in this whole area of love and sex and romance and marriage. And so the reason the relationship, eternal relationship with Jesus uses this sort of language is because what we feel now, the greatest feelings, are but a pale reflection of what that day will be like. The sheer intensity of love that God has for us in Jesus and we will have for him as we see him face to face. Now, can I say the implications of this are huge? There are implications in terms of sexuality discussions, the kind of stuff I mentioned earlier, the, the kind of stuff I do with living out. Because the eternal wedding is a wedding between Christ and the church. It is a union between people who are different. In eternity, Jesus doesn't marry Jesus. In eternity, the church doesn't marry the church. And human marriage is intended to be a reflection of that. And that's why Christians believe human marriage has to be male-female. Because human marriage isn't simply about now, it's about a picture of eternity. You, you do know that Christians believe something different about marriage. Not just that Christians believe it should be male-female, but, but Christians believe marriage is about something else. This is the unique perspective we have. Christians alone are the people that believe that marriage points beyond itself to eternity. That marriage is essentially a signpost. And that's why even though sometimes it's painful for me, I'm passionate about arguing that marriage has to be between a man and a woman because it's a picture, an eternal picture of Christ and the church. And the call for us is to hold on to the fact that this is a signpost. One of the dangers we have is forgetting that what our culture does, and let's be honest, sometimes what we do as Christians, is it's almost as though you're on a once-in-a-lifetime trip to, say, the Grand Canyon. You're driving along, you reach a signpost, Grand Canyon, three miles that way. And you stop at the signpost, and you put hats on, and you take pictures, and you have a celebration, you have a meal, and then you go home. And people at home say, what was the Grand Canyon like? They say, oh, the signpost was amazing. Now, don't get me wrong, human marriage is a great signpost. But according to Psalm 45, it is a signpost. It points to eternity. It points to the eternal union of Christ and the church. 
And so when in our culture people say, oh, the main goal is to have a satisfying sexual romantic relationship, or when we in the church say the main goal in life is to get married here and now, we forget it's a signpost. The Christian goal is to get married as part of the church to Jesus. That's the goal in life. And it's a great goal because life is short and eternity is long. I'm going to be single for about 0.0001% of my existence. As part of the church, I'm going to be married to Jesus for 99.99999% of my existence. And the call of Psalm 45 is to reorientate ourselves. It's helpful for those of us who are married. It's helpful for those of us who are married because, well, let's be honest, Marriage sometimes has its challenging moments. And if marriage is intended to satisfy us perfectly and permanently, well, that's quite a lot of pressure to put on your spouse. Whereas actually to be able to say marriage is a good gift, but what I'm going to get for eternity is even better. Well, that's a useful perspective to have. And for those of us who are single, believe me, I know some of the pain of that. And yet Psalm 45 tells me I'm not going to miss out ultimately. I'm going to miss out on the signpost. And the day, well, the day when we see Jesus is a day when one second of glory will extinguish a lifetime of suffering. When even the pains of this life are blown out of the water with the sheer ecstasy of seeing our glorious bridegroom. There are various passages that convince me that marriage should be for a man and a woman, but Psalm 45 is the one I love most because it speaks of marriage and it points to the eternal marriage. Now, just for two or three minutes, I wouldn't normally do this if I were preaching on Psalm 45, but just partly to pick up the issues of sexuality, given I know they're massive in our culture. How do I begin to explore this with friends? So, as I have friends who aren't Christians... They kind of know about my sexual attractions and begin to say, Andy, why don't you just go and find a boyfriend? And based on this passage, there are two things I increasingly say to my friends. Look, firstly, I want to say that everybody is worthy of dignity and respect. Everybody is made in the image of God. My views on marriage don't mean that I want to see people bullied because of their sexuality. I believe as Christians, actually, we want to be at the forefront of making sure that everybody is treated equally in the law because everybody is made in the image of God. But then I say to him, but look, to be honest, I do think marriage is about something different to you. I don't think marriage is simply about me exploring my desires. In fact, I actually think the universe is about something different to you. I think at the heart of the universe is a God who made us. And a God who defines us and gives us an identity better than one based on our sexuality. And I believe at the heart of the universe is a love story. A God who loves us so much that he was willing to come to earth as a bridegroom to find a bride. Even though we'd rejected him. And at the climax of this love story is an eternal relationship in a new creation. Between Jesus and the people who know and trust Jesus. And that's what I think sex and marriage is all about. Does that make sense? Dignity and respect, but a clarity that we think the universe and marriage is about something very different. 
It points to something beyond itself. So enjoy and look forward to the most glorious wedding day. Let me draw to a close by looking again at verses 10 and 11. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. And in those verses, we get essentially the application of this psalm for us today. What what are we to do with what we've looked at? Listen, consider, and give ear. Actually, the call for us amidst all the swirling noises about love and marriage that come from outside us and that come from within us, we're called to listen to this, to be receptive, to submit our own views and our own values to God's word. Listen. Forget your people and your father's house. That might be a word, actually, for for those who wouldn't call themselves Christians. And maybe you're here and you're intrigued. And the call is to say, begin a new life. Begin a new life. Begin a better life. A life as you're meant to be. Or or for, for others of us who are Christians, and yet we keep getting dragged back into living as though we're not Christians in different areas. We're, we're called, forget the life that is past. He wants us as part of his pride. The king is enthralled by, his be- by your beauty. That's the final command, verse 11. Honor him, for he is your Lord. And whether it's this area of sexuality, or whether it's other areas of life, the call comes to us today. Jesus is Lord. Not just any Lord, the most excellent and beautiful of men. He is Lord. And so as he tells us he wants us as his bride, as he's compelled even astonishingly by the beauty he has given us, we're called in all areas of our life to honor him, to submit ourselves to him, to choose to live for him, because believe me, there's nobody else who's worth living for. He's the glorious, beautiful, bridegroom, king. Let's pray together. Just a moment of quiet. It may be that the Lord Jesus has been speaking to us this morning. Just a moment in our hearts to respond to him. Lord Jesus, the most excellent of men, the one who's spoken gracious words to us, the mighty victor for the causes of truth, humility, and righteousness, the man who is God, the king who's full of joy, our bridegroom. 
Lord, we want to bow before you and honor you this morning. We want to pray that we would honor you in all areas of our life. We want to submit to you, even as we're astonished that you're enthralled by our beauty. And Lord, we want to pray that we would live essentially as those who are engaged. Thank you that we now are looking forward to a wedding day. So Lord, help us to run with perseverance that day. Help us, whether married or single, to prize that ultimate marriage as our glorious and ultimate goal, we ask. And we pray these things for your name's sake. Amen. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. The Lord Jesus is our glorious Lamb, our glorious bride, and we're going to worship him and praise him as we sing of him, crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Let's stand and we'll sing together. <laughs>